Well, good. Oh. A bit of feedback. Good evening, everyone. My name's. Uh, I'll have to stand back like this so I don't uh, blow you out of the room. Um, my name's Duncan Iverson. I'm the dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences here at the University of Sydney. It's great to have you here. Thanks for coming. Uh, before we begin, I just want to acknowledge uh, that we meet on the traditional land of the Gadigal people, who are the uh, First Nations uh, traditional owners of the land upon which the university is built. In fact, this was a traditional Gadigal meeting ground in Victoria Park, so it's a very appropriate place for us to meet uh, tonight. I want to pay respects to elders, both past and present, and I want to, uh, want to acknowledge that this has been a place of learning, not just for the past 160 years, but for the past 50,000 years as well. I want to welcome all of you who are visiting campus for the first time, and of course, I want to welcome our two speakers tonight at this, uh, I think, incredibly important and timely event women, gender, and the creative activisms in the Egyptian uh, revolution. And we've got, I think, a very nice format tonight with a, with a conversation and then a uh, question period. Um, the, the, the event tonight is being brought to us by a range of uh, sponsors. Of course, Sydney Ideas uh, is uh, sponsoring uh, the event tonight, but also the Religion, State, and Society Network in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, which is one of our research networks and the School of Languages and Culture as well, one of the five schools in uh, the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. And we're delighted to have two uh, absolutely superb uh, uh, speakers tonight. Uh, and first of all, uh, and let me introduce them, and first of all we have Margot Badrin who's visiting us. Uh, Margot is Senior Fellow at the Prince uh, Alwaleed Center for Muslim and Christian Understanding in Georgetown University. She's an historian, uh, gender studies specialist focusing on the Middle East and the Islamic world. Um, uh, she has degrees uh, uh, from uh, a range of uh, distinguished uh, universities, a DPhil from Oxford, an MA from Harvard, and a diploma from El Zahar uh, University. Um, she's taught and lectured at many universities around the world, uh, and among her most recent works is a chapter on gender and political Islam for the Oxford Handbook for a Political is uh, Islam and a number of uh, chapters in forthcoming uh, books, including uh, in a book uh, entitled Religion, the Secular, and the Politics of Sexual uh, Difference. Uh, and we're delighted to have Margot here uh, with us uh, this evening. Uh, Lucia Sorbera is a colleague of mine and lecturer in the Department of Arab and Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies here at Sydney. And she is an historian who specializes in women and uh, gender history in, in Egypt. And Lucia as well has a, a number of forthcoming publications that I think are, are highly relevant to, their, uh, to our discussion tonight, including uh, one uh, entitled uh, Between Co-Option and Resistance, uh, Women's Leadership and Gender Discourses in Contemporary uh, Egypt. Now, the, the, the nice thing, the lovely thing about the, the event is that this is a conversation that's been going on for 10 years. So we get to eavesdrop uh, for the next 50 or 40 minutes or so on a, what I know has been an incredibly uh, rich and extraordinary uh, conversation held in many places, from Venice now all the way uh, to Sydney and many places in between, including indeed in Egypt and, and Cairo uh, as well. Uh, so it's a real pleasure to uh, be able to uh, welcome Margot and Lucia uh, to the stage and to invite you to uh, engage us in conversation. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Duncan, and uh, thank you, Margot, for being here tonight. And uh, it's uh, really an honor and a pleasure having you in Sydney. Margot, you are a historian, huh? and, <laughs> and your work on the history of Egyptian feminism uh, has inspired generations of feminist historians, including myself. In your first book, Feminists, Islam and Nation, Gender and the Making of Modern Egypt, uh, you analyzed Egyptian primary sources uh, which had not been scrutinized before. Memoirs, uh, clippings, uh, oral histories, letter letters, minutes of meetings. Uh. But what is perhaps even more important, you question mainstream narratives about modern Egyptian history, challenging the idea that feminism was Western uh, and the direct product, product of the so-called Westernization and your historical narrative illuminated the indigenous roots of feminism, grounded in the discourse of modernity, Islamic reformism, and Egyptian nationalism. It was the first time that a study of this sort was dedicated to a pioneering feminist movement in the Middle East. In the late 90s, you were on the forefront of the study of Islamic feminism, a discourse of gender equality grounded in re-readings of the Quran and other religious sources, contributing to his explication and theorization, and engaging in discussion with the producers of this emerging discourse. I remember your talks at the international conferences on Islamic feminism in Paris in 2007, in Barcelona in 2008, and as well as your articles in the same years. After 2011, you began an, an, to undertake a new epistemological challenge, theorizing feminism and revolution in Egypt today. This, among other things, requires an overall rethinking of conventional conceptual categories. Last week, we went to Melbourne and in Canberra, where you gave public lectures on the long revolution in Egypt women, gender, and creative activism. What is the long revolution? Can you talk, tell us something about that? Well, first of all, I, is this working properly? No? for all the efforts she went to to uh, bring me here and to orchestrate a fantastic set of events here in Sydney and uh, in Melbourne and Canberra. And uh, I thank you all for um, coming uh, this evening. And I'm looking forward to, I mean, our conversation and the conversation uh, with uh, you. I came directly from Cairo on the 7th, I left on the 7th of this of October, and I have been on the ground and in the thick of things pretty much since the beginning of the revolution in, 2000, in uh, 2011, uh, January. And the day I left uh, right under my window was uh, a demonstration um, that got broken up rather forcefully. And uh, today, by the way, for anybody who's a Muslim, it's a happy feast, Eid Mubarak. 
and tomorrow, I guess, we're going to have uprisings. We've been told that there's one day of peace and then things may happen. Um, so we're in a very, very turbulent uh, time. Uh, Lucia asked me um, what I mean by the long revolution. And what I, how I use this word is that the long revolution, the term, you count here? Is it, uh, should I just speak louder? Uh, okay, uh, the long revolution, what I call the long revolution is a, re a revolution that goes, that uh, doesn't have an exact beginning or an ending. And I locate it back in the 19th century and uh, it goes on as we speak. And it is a, a revolution for uh, economic, social, uh, cultural, gender transformation along with an intrinsic, and an intrinsic part of a political change. And uh, I am particularly interested in focusing on this aspect of revolution. Now, the long revolution uh, includes three revolutions that are named and dated. The first is the 1919 revolution in Egypt. And this uh, was the first time that Egyptian women of the middle and upper classes uh, who were uh, segregated and living in seclusion uh, got out onto the streets in demonstrations against uh, the continued uh, British occupation of Egypt. And after uh, 1920, People, uh, women of the ordinary classes went out more spontaneously in the popular quarters with the men of their classes. The women's demonstrations were organized and they were um, women only. Now after 1922, many of you know this history, and there was quasi-independence of Egypt. The British were still there in and uh, foreign affairs and police and military and canal zone and all those sorts of things, um, and throughout the ministries. Uh, but women were told that they could go back to the home, that thank you very much indeed, uh, we'll get on with the project of building a new democratic uh, independent state that we seek, and women should retreat. Now these women did not retreat, and they, they insisted on being part of the national project, um, uh, developing new state institutions uh, to make sure that they were open and friendly to women and that women were able to take advantage of new opportunities. They formed the Egyptian Feminist Union, uh, and this was the first time there was an explicit uh, collective formal uh, feminist uh, in, uh, association created and so they continued and they worked on, on they, they, uh, this movement uh, uh, continued until the time of the 1952 revolution but what I would like wanted to stress is that women came out into the public they demanded they insisted to stay there back then for example when man of the walk went to England, London and came back with a, pre a provisional declaration of independence they didn't show it to the women. There are sort of shades of this going up into the recent period when women were not part of the constitutional, first constitutional committee. In any case, uh, uh, 1952 revolution um, marked uh, the opening of uh, 
opportunities across a vast class line for a free, uh, education was made free and universal for everyone through university and jobs were promised for, uh, for all Egyptians. But women gained as Egyptians, they gained in part of, as part of the citizen mobilization, but not as, as women. The family law, which is very conservative, ne never changed during uh, the Nasser period. Women did get the vote in 1956, and they had been asking for the vote since 1924. The first rights they got were mostly education and work. Now, in uh, at 1956, um, after getting the vote, the state shut down the uh, Egyptian Feminist Union. They suppressed all other independent voices, including the uh, Muslim Brothers, uh, for example. And uh, the, um, the, the state organized all the population uh, uh, in, it was a very authoritarian state. There was lots of uh, suppression, oppression. It was quite a police state. I, I experienced the tail end of it. In the 1970s, you have the open door policy, the general opening up, and the um, feminists are able to come out from under the ground and the Muslim brothers are able to reappear. And I, I just wanted to run through this history because it will help us ground what's going on now or anchor it. And so you had at this period um, these emerging forces which had not been able to um, appear in public. And uh, they uh, fell into a, a contestation with each other. And at this time, the that the Islamists were challenging the state, and you know that history, and they were labeling people who were not with them, who were not uh, either Ikhwan or Muslimin or other Islamist groups as secular. And the term secular um, early in the, um, in the late 20th century, in early uh, 19, uh, sorry, late 19th, early 20th century, simply signified uh, at one level the separation of church, of, of, uh, of religion and, and state. And uh, it, uh, secularism was always had space and place for religion. Uh, the law was, was uh, made to be state secular law except for family law, but it was not, the term secular had positive connotations. Secular included within its embrace uh, space uh, for uh, religion. In, uh, in the 70s, I, uh, the, the Islamists started degrading the word secular. So secular came and it came to be applied to individuals, to people and to identity. It was a category of identity. So the seculars were then not proper Muslims, not full Muslims, and it got, they, they got carried away to such an extent that sometimes they'd say you're not a Muslim. So they were, they were using the term secular to distance and demonize those who weren't uh, with them. And I point to this because we are feeling some of the results of this now. Uh, so I think I should stop at this point and wait for the next uh, I, starting on the line of this uh, development, this uh, idea of the idea of secular and religious, uh, in one of your essays titled uh, Competing Agenda, Feminism, Islam, and the State, uh, uh, you were looking uh, at the 20th century Egyptian history, suggesting uh, that in Egypt, uh, feminists in the latter third of the 20th century 
faced two patriarchal discourses, the Islamist and the secular patriarchal discourses. Can you explain this? Right. Um, well, I, I actually uh, worked on this piece uh, I ran through the whole 20th century, but particularly as you get up toward the 70s, uh, the feminists, because even during the, the, the Nasser period, they were there. I was there at that point, or part of that point. And they're sort of underground, but they're actually operating at some, uh, with lots of disabilities. Um, but the, the state, particularly as we're getting um, into the last third, uh, the state would play off the, when, when everybody was above ground again, they play off the Islamists and the feminists. And so uh, they would open up opportunity or space for feminists to say their thing. And of course, feminists were very critical of the Islamists. The Islamists wanted to roll back rights that were gained. They wanted to resurrect a kind of atavistic form of patriarchy. And uh, they wanted to, women to go back to the home, lose, uh, re retreat from jobs, and so on. And the feminists were doing exactly the opposite. They wanted to gain more rights and more opportunities and to be in public space and so on. So there's a lot of combat there. And so the state would allow the, the feminists to hit the Islamists and then they'd cool that down a bit and then they'd allow the Islamists to hit the feminists. So there was always this kind of tension. And of course the two groups obliged, um, but it was a very um, uh, bizarre uh, moment. And in a sense, you can find that thread throughout history, although played with different levels of intensity. Let's move on uh, the 2011 revolution. It started out as a broad-based inclusive uprising uh, against the authoritarian and corrupt regime uh, of Mubarak state. Social justice, equity, equality, dignity, democracy, and freedom uh, were clarion calls of the new revolution. How has the revolution played out over the past two and a half years? Right, uh, well, as you um, know, the uh, first, uh, the, the 18 days uh, leading up to the um, uh, February 11th when Mubarak was, uh, was expelled, we call the, um, this 18 day period, there were massive, massive uprisings. Of course, the epicenter, as we know, was Tahrir, but there were uprisings in, in, in Alexandria, Port Said, and other places. And uh, uh, in, the, in the Medans, you found uh, uh, women, uh, the youth, as we know, were really the, uh, had ignited the um, start of the revolution, and they were there in greatest numbers. Uh, but very soon, uh, people of different generations joined in marches, in sit-ins, and all sorts of things. And uh, so in the square, you found women and men, perhaps in equal numbers, I mean, vast numbers of women. Again, you're getting the theme. Women are always out there in time of revolution, uh, uh, supporting uh, the goals, whatever goal of the particular revolution. Um, so you had the women, you had the men, you had different generations. You had religious and secular, or you had within the religious category the Islamists and the, not the others. And the people were getting along well, they were cooperating because everything was focused on getting rid of uh, Mubarak. I mean, that was the immediate goal with a hope and the idea of transforming the political system, which of course we have not seen yet. Uh, but what was so beautiful and, and magnificent was 
it was a time of, of real cohesiveness and, and um, incredible harmony and uh, you know, feeling of togetherness and, and support and, and all these uh, uh, points of division were just were evaporated. And people were talking to each other across all kinds of divides and, and helping each other. And it was a very, 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 very exciting time to be in Egypt and to be Egyptian, by the way, which I am. And uh, the, uh, but soon after the expulsion of Mubarak, you start to have elements of fragmentation, which I'm sure happen. There, there are moments, revolutionary moments, when, it, when there is this cohesion and then there is some uh, fragmentation. As you know, in the, uh, in the weeks, um, of, uh, in the period following uh, uh, February 11th, there were many um, groups, occupational groups, who were making demands, uh, making their own demands. Uh, uh, and um, there were, they were, there were mostly male groups, although there was, uh, with many of the working groups, men and women. The first time there was a women's only demonstration um, was uh, on March 8th to celebrate the International uh, uh, Women's Day. And this was the first time that we got the indication clear, loud and clear, that there was a lot of trouble and that women, there was physical and, and sexual harassment at the march. I was there, but I left rather early. I was catching a plane out and afterwards, I mean, actually, as I was on the plane, I read about this assault going on and it was um, the first time that women had been um, assaulted in, in this more formal political uh, space. Yes, there were probably the main uh, um, uh, folks doing it were these Baltagis, these, these um, thugs, but thugs are usually in the pay uh, or the employment of certain groups. Um, some of them may have a field day, but in any case, it was, it, there were, uh, it was an indication that women perhaps should, I mean, that there were folks that wanted women to go back and also there were folks that perhaps wanted to disrupt the revolution by, by hitting on women and things like this. And uh, so this was actually the beginning of a long period that we're still in now of incredible um, violence uh, against women and all sorts of different folks have come to the fore to participate in this. And the military, as you know, there was the virginity testing and that happened a couple of days after March 8th, so the thing gets very messy and, and, and complicated who's involved. And because in those days, the military, uh, well, uh, they were trying to scaff the Supreme Council of Armed Forces, you know, to keep the revolution um, under uh, control. So, uh, so you had, um, uh, this was, um, sort of the hors d'oeuvres of what was in store uh, for uh, women. Now, uh, at this point, around this time, um, there were a lot of people in the Western press, particularly, who were saying that revolution failed women. And I remember I got a telephone call from uh, the, uh, someone in London, from the BBC, and she wanted to know why the how the revolution failed women. And I said, well, the revolution didn't fail women. And the telephone call ended there, so that was that. But the thing is that um, that some people outside and um, and inside too um, fixate on what is lost or what is endangered, and we need to do that. 
mean women weren't part of the constitution committee women when the for the vote voting for parliament women were put at the at the bottom of the list and on and on and so there were there were many issues many problems where women were being sidelined ignored and so on and some of the feminists in Egypt were drawing attention to this and we went around we had lots of meetings here and there protesting the exclusion of women and particularly in the case of the constitutional committee I mean there's so many women lawyers we have women judges a huge sort of pool of very qualified people but first of all the revolution didn't fail women because the revolution is women the revolution is men the revolution is all of us so it didn't it's not something out there that struck them and failed women I mean obviously the revolution has not succeeded in everything it wants but it's a complex thing and so what I feel is that I mean you can look at what was what wasn't gained or you can look at the sidelining but then you can also look at what what the more positive side and look at how women remained out there remained on the scene remained in the political protest in in organizing all kinds of little groups sprung up we have there are also lots of feminist organizations NGOs and they were even expanding or getting more enthusiastic and committed to you know work pushing forth their goals there was a lot of national organizing national networking and 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 this great spirit of we're in it and we're staying and we're going to work things through and I think that that you look at those things and you can see a more positive result of revolution because revolution energizes you and even as you know the tear gas is flying and all this stuff is happening and you get insulted I'm thinking of being a woman but I suppose men get insulted too but but you are so full of this you know power and electricity and you feel that you're really you can make a difference and and so that I see that that the revolution actually has unleashed extraordinary energies and possibilities and determinations and also because a lot of the young women first it was this revolution pulled everybody of vast social backgrounds together and so there were all kinds of networking going on that we never were able to do before and I was part of them and part of forming new sets of people and there are people that I could meet now they just the social possibilities were never there we couldn't connect with each other and so we learned more about their needs and our needs collectively and individually and so this I think we cannot underestimate this the young women for example coming from all sorts of backgrounds many of them had never been part of any feminist organization or women's rights organization or even human rights organizations they they were not able to move around so easily because their families would keep them down they had personal curfews all sorts of things but once out and once the energy and the possibility was kind of opened up I mean they 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 remained on the scene now since the 18 days and we have lots of periodization of course historians like that but let me keep it more broad that women and youth who are trying to keep the revolutionary esprit alive along with some others 
have faced um, what I call three patriarchies. And patriarchies, anyway, as you know, I mean, the, the patriarchal orders um, are very hierarchical, and you have the old over the youth, the men over the women, the rich over the poor. I mean, they maintain this, this set of, you know, of hierarchies, whereas the egalitarian order is trying to break through all of this. Now, so after um, the, um, I mean, in the aftermath of 18 days and, and um, actually escalating, the youth and women were the ones that formed, uh, that faced the brunt of what I call the three patriarchies. And again, by youth, uh, well, let me continue. Um, so the first military, uh, first patriarchy is what I would call the uniformed patriarchy, which is the police and most particularly the, uh, the, mil uh, the military. And you remember what everyone called SCAF, the Supreme Council of Armed Forces, uh, which tried to control the forces of the revolution and particularly women and men. And I gave you some glimpses of how they wanted to control women. And of course, there was so much military put down of all kinds of demonstrations. You, a lot of you know about Mohammed Mahmoud's dreams of when it got very violent, uh, uprisings around the parliament uh, building and, and so on. So then the second um, patriarchy um, are the Islamists. And particularly after the Islamists come to power first by gaining uh, the uh, majority in parliament and they were hold the elections as you know were late 11, uh, early 12. And then when, uh, when uh, the Islamists ascended to uh, power through the presidency in uh, June 30th, uh, uh, 2012, and the, this Islamist patriarchy has been very, very powerful, strong. Um, of course, the Islamists were incrementally gaining more power. They were exclusivist. They were um, marginalizing and, and excluding uh, folks of all sorts of different, I mean, uh, um, positions were uh, getting rid of people in the ministries, putting, packing the high level, min the high positions with their folks, um, changing the governors and the governorates. Uh, they were particularly targeting the media and, um, and uh, cultural producers. But uh, it was very, very heavy going with women and the rhetoric, some of the rhetoric on the floor of the parliament on the, uh, coming from Islamists was, was at the very least rather disgusting. And of course then it has a kind of so-called Islamic veneer, you know, so they're trying to recuperate or, uh, uh, a very um, uh, retrogressive reading of, of Islam, most of which people have left behind. And so this was a particularly uh, difficult um, patriarchy and also these folks like the military, I mean they wanted the women to retreat. So it's not just the Islamists, it was also the military. The, the, the final three, a third of, I mean third type of, of patriarchy, uh, and we've talked about this too a lot, is, is um, the so-called secular liberal men or secular liberal patriarchalists. And there's a problem with secular and a problem with liberal, and we're all talking about this all the time, so I sort of put it in quotes so we can talk about what might be the best way of describing these people. But, you know, they're supposed to be, you know, the friends of people who like women, uh, disadvantaged, and all that sort of thing. 
But um, what did they do, um, apart from being part of the forces that excluded women from important committees like the Constitutional, although the military had a big role in that, um, but they put women at the bottom of the electoral lists, and they really um, have sidelined women considerably. And they do it a little more, you know, the, the sort of rapier or whatever you call it, the needle goes in with, you know, it's more sometimes, it, they, it, you feel they may be with you and it's less sometimes um, aggressive, but it may be even worse in the end because they are, are undermining um, a lot of the, uh, or shrinking the space for women and, and not really particularly robustly bringing them into uh, the, uh, the process. Uh, I would like to, uh, if I may anticipate your question about, or go into the third phase of the revolution. Now, we're in a, we're in a very um, difficult um, uh, moment now. Uh, I mean, you all know the recent history. Uh, things were, have been building up since early uh, 2013. Uh, I mean, they were building up before, but it, it was getting worse and worse. And I was going out of the country for a few short visits, and every time I came back, I could see things were just, you could see them getting worse when you're sometimes away from them. And you, uh, also, there was a big uptick in sectarian and gender violence. And we've always had gender violence with us, I mean, at some level. But this was getting out of control. And there are many theories and explanations or, or you know, probable explanations about why gender and why uh, sectarian um, violence. We can talk about that, but the fact is it was there. And you have this huge overall economic disaster and folks were really, really, really having a hard time of it. I mean, you know, the first year, a little bit of complaining, but being able to manage, it's just getting worse and worse. And of course, a country which depends on tourism, uh, which is main source of economy, I mean, you can imagine, I mean, how devastating it is for these folks. And most people live, you know, sort of day by day, week by week. I mean, they don't have a lot of resources. So, um, uh, there was this situation and this idea that, I mean, not the idea, but that the Islamist uh, government uh, was just taking over and excluding and, and there was a heavy kind of rhetoric, Islamic rhetoric, it was getting quite, quite um, unpleasant. Now, you know, all know about the Tamarit or the rebel, rebel or rebellion uh, um, uh, movement and this was, uh, there are different, narratives about exactly how it started. It started with a few young folks from April 6 or whatever, um, but again, youth, and then the military seemed to have gotten in on the act soon. Now, what to what extent the Mukhabarat of the military was in in the beginning? I mean, there are all these things we, most of us can't know clearly. Uh, we can see things from our different positions, positions and listen to people, but in any case, uh, so there was this massive, as you know, petition signing a movement, and uh, you had to um, put your ID card, and it was quite well organized, and there was a format, a form, and so on. So uh, you know that from uh, end of April, May, and June 30th, um, there were these, and we said 30 million signatures. I don't, we don't have to get into, you know, was it 30 million or 25 million or 10, 12 million or whatever, um, and um, signatures, but uh, there were um, a lot of signatures, we know that. 
And um, so they wanted to, uh, to present this on the day that Mubarak, uh, sorry, um, Morsi, two M's here with me, um, uh, was uh, voted into power. Anyway, you know what happened on the on 20th of, uh, 30th of June, uh, there was a massive uprising. Um, I was also there for that uprising, and I, um, I mean, I mean, not uprising marches, and I have never in my life seen that those numbers of people. I was in Midan Kobri Gala, for those of you who know Cairo, and it's the point, meeting point of people coming in from uh, Mohandasin and from Clear Street, from the north, south in Giza, from the north, and it, they converge and then go over Tahrir, and it was just acres of people, and waves and waves and waves and waves. I mean, I stood there, you know, almost three hours. I couldn't, I couldn't even stand up any longer, and I, and I wasn't. I did not join in that march, but it was very, um, there it was, uh, there were more people came, uh, that came out there and throughout Egypt than had ever happened from the beginning of the revolution. The other thing that was interesting is that um, the folks who came out were of a broader uh, social group and there were more, by far more very uh, um, modest folks were part of this. And the other thing is that some of the small shopkeepers and people and working in the souks and things, because I've, I've been talking to these folks for two and a half years. Every time I go out and do anything, it's more research and I try to keep on top of uh, patterns and everything. And people who before would say, well, if I asked them, have you gone out on this Mazahara or something, and they'd say, well, you know, I've, I've got to mind the shop or whatever. This was gone. They said they were closing down their shops. They were closing them early. They were getting out. And it was very clear that there was much more um, uh, engagement. Now, um, I'd just like to final, uh, wind off that part. I um, talked with uh, uh, regular folks in, in Egypt, and all, I mean, sorry, uh, in Cairo, and also I went to Upper Egypt to uh, the Western Desert, uh, where all these, uh, uh, and, and I went from there overland uh, to, uh, through several governorates, including um, uh, Kinna, and ended up at the Red Sea. And so I was talking to people uh, outside as well. And what was very interesting was um, this, uh, the, the people were talking about the importance of, and Lucia and I have sort of discussed this, um, the, the breaking of the link of Deen Wadawla, religion and state, in other words, uh, that we don't want a state, Islam, uh, you know, Islamic state, and we don't need, and we don't want religion as part of it. Now before, they, there were indications that a lot of people were thinking that way, but now they have these phrases. I mean, whether they're introduced through the population or not is one thing. But the fact is that, that people were articulating this, and they seemed to be pretty committed. And what was interesting, those of you who know Egypt, Kinna is also a place of lots of Salafis, and very conservative, and I heard this from folks from, from, from there. And they also, what was happening, and I heard this again in Cairo and elsewhere, is they said, we don't need the state or the Ikhwan, which could be the same, telling us how to be Muslims. I mean, there was a lot of that too. You know, we don't want the state and religion, but we also don't want those folks to say, how you, how you practice Islam, how you, what is a good Muslim, how to do things, we know very much, uh, we know well 
and we're Muslims like them, and they don't have any business kind of telling us what to do, because lots of things are starting to get moralized, and they would use this discourse to pull people in. Now, I know this is my perspective, it's my experience, and if there's anybody here who has other pieces, I would love to hear that, because this is my, um, my coming from my own um, observation, and I move around a lot. Now, so this uh, moment, I really think, to finalize this piece is that, th that this has broken the grip forever, I really believe, of the hold of Islamists on the imagination or on the thinking of ordinary people anywhere. I think it's gone now, it's broken. Because in the beginning, you know, when they got in voted into parliament, lots of folks were voting for them, okay? And, and even I was sympathetic, and many, some of us were sympathetic, but they, they, they just, because of what they did, eventually most of us were, were falling back. But in the beginning, because during the repression of the, you know, during the Mubarak years and even before, um, and the, the retraction of state services and so on, um, the Ikhwan uh, were providing lots of social services to the masses, and they built up this as their base, and they were working, you know, rather semi-underground or very low profile, whatever you want to say. So when you had the uh, first uh, elections, and again, I'm out there asking everybody I can, who did you vote for? You know, some say mind your own business, some tell me. And, uh, and, and they said, and when I asked why you're voting for Ikhwan candidate, they said they have hibra, they have experience, they had nothing to do with the, the government of Falul, you know, the remnants, because at that time it was very important, you know, were you attached or part of the Mubarak regime at a fairly high level because so many people were part of it in the sense of being part of the bureaucracy. So that was pretty important. And the fact that they were opposition, the fact that they suffered, the fact that they had done stuff for the people, you know, because there was so, with the economic corruption and everything, I mean, they, they smelled more like roses because they weren't, you know, taking what they were giving. And uh, so this was the, um, this was what I was hearing. And then when I did say to some of them, well, what will you do if they don't turn out to be what you thought? And these were, I remember a couple of young men in their track suits going across the bridge. And, and they said, well, we've got the street. We've got the new dance. I said, okay, that was it. Well, in the end, that's what happened. They took to the new dance and they took to the streets. And uh, they lost all their credibility. And, and so from being people who are perceived to help the population, they were per people that were perceived as, as the, problem, the problem. And they couldn't do any uh, economic, I mean, it, mind you, it's not easy to transform that place. But so, uh, so it was all uh, sort of squandered. But I think that Humpty Dumpty can't, that Humpty Dumpty can never be put back together again. And I think that a real, Upsurge. When I say secularism, let me give my uh, one definition. The, the feminist movement was called uh, a secular feminist movement, and the Ittihad and Zionists, or the Egyptian feminist movement, after the independent struggle. And secular was another term for Egypt. So it was an Egypt, Egypt for all Egyptians. And the flag, the flag of the revolution, had the crescent and had the crosses. And secular simply, and that meaning of secular was were, were secular citizens of a secular state with equal rights, and, and you've got your religion, I've got my religion, you know, um, and that's, that's the story. So I think, um, I think the, the, 
the way the Islamists behaved in the government and socially and all this sort of thing the last months, especially, I think that they have um, brought back secularism to the country. And uh, this, the old secularism where you have your religion and where you figure out how to do it and, uh, and the state stays out of your business and stays out of the business of, of uh, religion. And I, I just don't think there's any way now to roll back from that. I think they've lost totally. Now the situation, as you know, is lethal and very dangerous. That's another point. I'll stop there. Thank you. I will refrain from asking my last questions because uh, I, time is going very fast and uh, we already have uh, a number of themes on the plate. So, and I'm sure there will be a number of questions to be asked. So I will ask Duncan to Sure, sure. So we've got a microphone. Uh, uh, Meredith's got a microphone in the back. So if people just raise your hands and ask a question, we'll keep them fairly to the point rather than making statements. Right. <laughs> Sorry, Meredith, right down to the front. Thank you. I'm, so I'm hearing you. Well, um, I think we would all like <laughs> to know that and um, I have an answer. Uh, uh, as, I mean, as you know, I mean, we all know from, you know, what we read and uh, we know from what we see closer um, that uh, uh, we have, um, I mean, there's an interim government, of course. These folks have been uh, removed, and we can talk about how they were removed and why. Um, the military, of course, removed them. The military is very much in control, and we have emergency law. And there was never a real political transformation anyway. So, uh, there is where it is. and. Uh, we are, or they are, or Egypt is supposed to be, you know, building a new democratic order, and there are a whole bunch of. It's supposed they're trying to recuperate a kind of, or gain a kind of inclusivity, uh, but the state at, at right now, I mean, is being held up by the military um, and the police, who've been somehow reformed, although not so fully, and how we can how a, a democratic order can be established uh, does remain to be seen. And, and of course, people are worried that if you can't include the Islamists, Ikhwan, or Salafis, or whoever, um, it's also going to be difficult because you're going back to another form of exclusivity. And of course, I feel, I mean, it's just more patriarchal politics as usual, and the costumes of the people keep changing. So I, I, I don't know where we're headed. Lucia, do you want to have a go with that? Do you, you want to add anything to that? Or? No, please. Okay. <laughs> 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 You're being very patient. Uh, <laughs> any other 
Just raise your hand. There we go. Uh, I have a question. Um, my name is Faye. Uh, where do you see uh, do you see a revival of feminists like Nawal Sadawi um, in Egypt? Do you see a revival of her thoughts and writings by other feminists or by women in general? Well, first of all, uh, yes, th thank you for the question. Um, I, I actually would not uh, frame it as a revival of her thoughts or of feminism because it's, it's been there. I mean, feminist ideas have been held onto, if you will, um, continuously. Now, what is happening is the base and breadth of those involved has really increased uh, tremendously. Um, and again, I mean, when you're talking, I'm doing a lot of oral histories and even moving among the revolutionaries and going out in events and so on. And you have a much more a broadening of the class base. And a lot of it came out of women who were already involved in the uprisings. And uh, so they, what Sadawi wants, you know, is more equality, more rights, more active rights is, is what they want. She was seen in the square, I mean, with her wild, gray hair, she, you know, was, it was easy to spot her, and, and a lot of people were very, I mean, take, took heart from, you know, the fact that she was out there, particularly at her age. Um, the Egyptian Feminist Union, which was closed down in 56, I mentioned, now there are two new versions of it that have been resurrected um, uh, in order to, you know, um, carry on, uh, I mean, to continue in a, in a formal, organized way, and one of the Ittihads, uh, there's a problem of two names, of same name of two organizations, but one of the Ittihads actually has been inspired by Sadawi and those youth around her. She had around her uh, a number of men and women who were reading her um, works and discussing them in the late, uh, in late 2010. And so she is an inspiration to some people, but a lot, most people, you know, are inspired by multiple uh, um, sources. And, uh, yeah. On this, uh, on this line, I... It's a big change of the mentality. You know, they, they have disobeyed. Now, these young men and young women, they have disobeyed to the army, to the president, to their parents. And uh, a, a deep human revolution is happening. The revolution is not only a private revolution, a public revolution, a political revolution, but it's a private revolution. And uh, since this began, they, they are not going to disobey from here. And you can see it in uh, public uh, cultures, you can see in public discourse uh, how they behave when they give you, when they narrate you their own story, but also the art that they produce. You know, they are reappropriating the city. There's a lot of graffiti and there's a lot of uh, uh, storytelling around the city. Margot has more experiences about that to, to narrate. But from the point of view of art and public art and cultural production, there's a lot of happening. Right, and that was, we were going to go into that. 
into almost the DNA now. And these folks, as, as uh, Lucia is saying, I mean, they, they have different habits. They have different habits. Once you break through authority and you break, you, you, you don't have to be disrespectful to your parents, but you don't also have to yes and do everything as they want. And so there is this breaking forth and breaking free. And those folks who went and sat and slept in the medans now you know, are doing other things. And she's absolutely right. And, and this explosion of, of art, uh, of, and, as she was saying, street theater and, and theater in little um, venues. And you have the Tahrir monologues and they talk about, and they recite um, you know, uh, what happened, say, during the 18 days or other that Mohammed Mahmoud. And so they're almost, I mean, they're restaging um, lots of events, and you have uh, these monologists are somehow a modern genre, and then you have the old hakawatis, the old storytellers, and they are phenomenal. I mean, they can skewer anybody, you know, with this wonderful language and incredible humor. And so the military, the imams, you know, the ikhwan, I mean, they just assembled them, uh, disassembled them. And you see women and men and young and old in these very, lots of little simple, you know, cafes with plastic chairs and just very improvised, an improvised culture. And uh, so I think this is part of the long evolution, part of the, the change, because we, uh, there is a problem of how to go about, how to create, you know, new forms, and uh, new government, new institutions. But they're creating what they can do in public space and playing out the vision. Margot, thanks very much uh, for this. Although we were a bit disadvantaged at the back because we didn't hear most of your um, what you were saying. We might have to uh, ask a question with regards to whether the revolution has failed women or not, and how do you compare? between the um, previous government, so that is between the revolution of January 2011 and the revolution of June 2013. So that's uh, in the decision-making, in the government, in the um, Constitution Committee, and other, uh, actually, um, uh, committees. Right. Uh, I'm sorry that... Um the voice didn't reach everybody uh, because that's what we're having a problem with our voices now in Egypt wanting to reach people. Um, so I got stuck here, <laughs> Sydney. Um, uh, oh, okay. Test testing. Uh, Oh my God, it's like an ice cream cone, but there's no ice cream. <laughs> um, I, yeah, um, first of all, I like to call it one revolution, but that's okay, you can call it two, and some people do, so I wouldn't really quibble, but I see it more as part of the same thing. Um, the, uh, in terms of uh, right now what's going on, I mean, there's not much. And of course, it all, if you look at the iconography and you look at what's going on, like, you know, you see Sisi and then the interim, you know, um, uh, Mansour, Adli Mansour, and all these folks, and, and the Imam, uh, uh, Sheikh Al Azhar, and the 
what's he called, the Pope and all those folks. And you, you sort of see the array of people and it's male. There was one woman advisor and she was so far back in the photograph that until you took out a, a magnifying glass, I couldn't even see her. But, uh, but women, there are more women in the Constitutional Committee um, and there are more women ministers, but I mean, that's not, in my opinion, the biggest of big deals because I think they're just playing smart. You know, they're trying to look as if they're a little bit better. Uh, I mean, uh, maybe it's cynical, but I'd rather keep with a cynical piece. Um, and uh, we don't, ha I don't have, I mean, there's not a lot of immediate hope that women will be very much part of the new uh, scene. They were not part, much part of the old scene. And um, we, of course, uh, there is a big relief on those who were not pro-Morsi folks, that they're out for all kinds of reasons, because it's getting very dangerous to have an Islamic justification and rhetoric for all sorts of things, including heavy duty, very heavy duty, patriarchalism. I wrote a piece called Patriarchal Extremism, and that's what I think it was. Um, but uh, the uh, situation is, is um, we still have a military backbone to things. We still have the secular liberal men who aren't doing a lot either. So we still have some of the same old, same old. Um, uh, and it remains to be seen, you know, what, uh, what will happen. It remains to be seen if women will be put higher up on the electoral lists and so on. So uh, that's where it is. Any other questions? Right at, right at the back. Oh, somebody, you just walked. <laughs> uh, hi. Um, I'm interested in your opinion um, on the brotherhood mm -hmm. and the economic performance, which I think shapes a lot of what's happened subsequent to uh, speak up. The economic? Yes, about economics, uh, and I think this is very important because it shaped a lot of the a lot of the trajectory of what happened in Egypt post um, post February 2011. And I've had the benefit of being in Egypt probably about close to ten times in the last two years uh -huh. on business. And the one thing that I've noticed is that um, in the first 18 months after the revolution, uh, there was a significant upswing in consumer spending and consumer activity. Which uh, uh, in what? A, consumer, a significant upswing in consumer activity and spending. There was actually, it was, and I, I know this because of the sectors I'm, I'm involved in, uh. and yet it seems that the Islamic Brotherhood failed to, 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 to yield this or it failed to capitalize on this. And I think in the last six months, uh, it seems that some sectors of the economy, some, some elite sectors who are clearly opposed to the revolution, managed to clamp down and close down the, these key taps which feed industry and manufacturing and transport and what have you, which cause the enormous uh, disenfranchisement and enormous dissatisfaction of the, with the MB. Uh, so the elements who that were against the revolution. That's correct, yeah. I mean, it yeah. seems to me there was some elite, it seems that there like was some Like a Falul, sort of Falul type of thing? Uh, well, you know, elites who are involved in business, who have benefited from from monopolies, for example, under the previous regime. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, sorry, I can't quite hear. <laughs> uh, you know, who, who, who clearly uh, perhaps have had some significant access to the military, to the police, and managed somehow to turn off the taps, whether it's fuel, gas, food well, supplies. 
And, and, and it seems that this is a product of the naivety of the Islamic Brotherhood, who failed to guarantee a supply chain of food, of gas, of petroleum, to the degree that right. uh, annoyed with them, and then subsequently sort of not doing much about that. Well, um, this, I, it's, uh, this is not what I um, am best able to speak to, with too much information about, but um, there are all these theories, of course, as you know. I mean, one is that the remnants of the old regime have been working um, to, you know, uh, hang on to their parts of the, of what, of the economy that they controlled, uh, that they were trying to subvert the revolution, trying to subvert the hold of the Ikhwan. Um, and there was a lot of people uh, who were claiming that within the government, I mean, for example, the fuel crisis, and you, we've, most people have probably read about that, and it was a horrendous thing. I mean, I lived through that too, and, and, and it really crippled the movements of, of, say, Cairo, which is already too vast a city, and you just had huge block, uh, you know, blockages with these, uh, everybody trying to get um, gasoline, and they were attributing that to people subverting um, the operation of uh, distribution of gas uh, um, from within the government. Uh, and some people say it isn't just the, the Falul bit is one thing. The other thing is that there were people who wanted or, or you know, groups that wanted to make it impossible for the Ikhwan to carry on. And so there is that narrative, you know, that they had no chance and everybody was working against them. But my um, answer to that is, well, you know, when you have all these forces and you are controversial, then, I mean, it's up to you or in any government, any place, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to deal with it. And if you can't deal with it, then you've got to be out. And, and whether it be they were trying to get them out or not trying to get them out or who was doing what, the fact is it was, um, it, it, it was happening. But the thing was that they, they, they could not, run that country. They could not run that government. They had no political experience. They're, now they're back into what it is they do best. Victims and, you know, on the run and being persecuted and so on. And uh, they didn't have the experience. They didn't have the I mean, I don't know what business you do, but, but um, some of the service industry um, that I have experience with, I mean, take something as simple as coiffure, but you know, all everybody likes to look beautiful over there. So, I mean, it's a pretty big industry. And um, so, I won't because you get paid or whatever. But no, the thing is that um, I was asking, I mean, I never saw too many people. And, uh, and, and people were saying in that business, you know, that women are, they're fear, the fear factor. Women are afraid, women are going, and also the buying is down. I mean, the bakals, the local, uh, uh, I mean, um, what do you call it? Um, yes, exactly. And they were saying, we're not selling at the level we sell. Well, part of it is because people don't have money, but again, 
the movements, I mean, you get, you get the basics, but I, I should say maybe the supermarkets is a better example, you know, where they wouldn't be right under your windows, you'd have to travel. So the security piece was, was part of it. But um, actually, I think if, <laughs> I mean, it seems if the economy had really been rolling, these folks would still be in. I think so. How do we hear? of different kinds of patriarchies, of, of three different types of patriarchies. And I'm wondering if that's something that you heard um, Egyptian feminists themselves talking about or, or using at all in trying to look at uh, outcomes. Or um, also, if you heard them talking at all about the revolution failing them. Um, so I'm or anything like that? Right. Well, uh, first of all, since I'm an Egyptian woman, um, I'm part of it, okay? And uh, I actually didn't hear anybody talk about the pa three patriarchies, but I like the sound of it, you know, it sounds rather good. No, but I think we have to sort of see what we're up against and not lose sight, because now, you know, we're losing sight of them. I mean, some of us are losing sight of the military patriarchy, and some of us are even more afraid. But the fact is, I thought of these three separate yeah, sets of people and in, in, in the way they approach it, which is different, and then you can smudge the lines and just have you know, the big patriarchal culture. Um, uh, as, as far as I, uh, the woman in the back, I guess you didn't hear the failed revolution thing, because um, most, I mean, in Egypt, we're not talking about the failed revolution. I mean, we don't use that term. Of course, feminists, especially the old organized, uh, the older women, I mean, who, who are part of you know, the process of trying to get certain legal changes in laws which, which were uh, achieved in the early part of this century, finally, um, were, are, are talking about, um, they don't say failed revolution, but they talk about rolling back of rights and so on. I do too, I talk about that. Uh, but uh, I don't, and sometimes it slides into the failed revolution or, you know, the term that you hear a lot in the West, but it's much more the West and, you know, it gets rather irritating, you know, I go home to the States and, and you know, it's all the failure and, it, you know, it's all gone south and, you know, it, it's, sometimes you think people really want it to happen and they talk about it and they can't see other things going on. In terms of strategy, in terms of how things, um, uh, how to move forward, um, there are a number of old NGOs, like, um, some of, um, many of them have had a research component and they, they try to combine that with activism and, and sort of, you know, uh, helping women be aware of rights and that, that is continuing. Um, they, they try to connect uh, nationally, they're trying to make more contacts active context throughout the country. That's a big, a big um, sort of um, uh, uh, desire and they're trying to figure out, you know, how to do that and uh, uh, it's not, it's, there are many, it's, it's not easy for lots of reasons, but in fact, they're, having said that, there are a lot of local groups that get supported. Uh, as far as a, a grand strategy, um, I, I, don't think so, and, it, and collective organizing is also very, it's very hard to do for a lot of um, 
reasons. So I think it's more um, scattered and kind of um, specialized, if you, if you will, although people who are researching the institutions more than I am, the associations, I like to stick with the people now more and not run around to all the, I mean, they're saying that a lot of these organizations, even though they're not actively necessarily working together, that they have a sort of a repertoire of uh, aims and that they have slightly different priorities. Some work more on the legal front, some do more medical, some do more income work. Uh, and also there's something very interesting uh, called the Musawa movement, which was um, started a few years ago and it's, um, uh, it, it emerged out of a sort of um, Islamic feminist uh, networking uh, and an organization in, this in uh, Kuala Lumpur called Sisters in Islam and they had lots of transnational conferences and built up a vast network. And a few years ago, they established, they created uh, Al Musawa, which is equality. And uh, they are moving from sort of rhetoric and, and um, uh, uh, you know, publication of documents, which is very, very important uh, materials. And they're now trying to organize movements to change uh, family law. And uh, their headquarters just moved uh, recently to, uh, to Cairo. And so that's quite interesting. Um, they, because through Islamic feminist discourse, you can still have the, your Sharia-based family law, but you can have a whole different way of organizing as they did for, I mean, organizing the law and s such as they did in uh, Morocco, you know, where men and women are heads of family and all this sort of thing. So, uh, and, and so there are overlapping linkages. Um, and some of the women who are on the committee of um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, chain, the constitutional committee, you know, lawyers, and then they'd be involved in this and that and so on. So that's how I see it operating uh, now. We've got time for a few more questions. Right, right at the back. That's it. Um, yeah, I just wanted to uh, ask you, uh, and I, I got here at the bit late, so I uh, hope I haven't, you haven't covered this already. Um, there was the, um, the well-documented rapes, uh, uh, most prominently of a, uh, a blonde American journalist uh, in, uh, I think it was around Tauri Square, and uh, uh, a few other uh, uh, rapes uh, reported of uh, women, both Egyptian and, and foreign. Um, I just wanted to do, hear your feedback on whether you've heard whether this was a deliberate tactic by either the Muslim Brotherhood or by, you know, government, uh, ex-government uh, sympathisers, whether it was done for a political purpose or was opportunistic, and what kind of has been the repercussions and feedback in terms of w the thinking behind why it happened and, and, and what's gone on since then? Right. Uh, yes, this is... Um, glad you brought that up. Uh, can you hear me? Uh, yes. Uh, well, there... Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, uh, yes. I mean, as I was sort of marking the baptism, if I may use that term, of uh, uh, I mean, uh, a resurrected uh, um, sexual and physical harassment of women uh, in the way that Mubarak's thugs used to do it, you know, against folks in the 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, that period. Um, uh, with the, the harassment on the March 8th march. 
it's, it's been, it seems to be increasing constantly, I mean, or exponentially or whatever. I mean, there's just more and more and more harassment. And of course, there are different layers and levels of it. Uh, and there are theories why. And I am moving around um, among the revolutionaries I move with. Um, several, many of them now are, are combating this. And they're combating it literally on the street with young men. And I failed to mention that the new crop of feminists are men and women together, and uh, much more than you've ever seen before. And so these teams of young women and men, and they belong to different groups. They've um, organized, you know, founded different groups. And they are out there to take control themselves because the state didn't do it, the police didn't do it. Uh, the secular liberals, when they had their rallies, they, they, people say, when you have rallies, you have to organize your own protection, as they did in the 18 days, you know, and, uh, and of course, with the Islamists and so on. So these folks are saying, the first and foremost, we've just got to be out there and protect ourselves. And of course, it's in the Medans and it's in the metros and, and the transportation, and so they are um, doing this sort of thing. Now, um, the uh, theories of why, because I've asked them, and uh, I mean, one of my friends who's founded one of these movement, uh, organizations, I mean, she said one reason is they do it because they can do it. And a lot of them are just youths, you know, very mischievous, and they don't, you know, harass women where they live. So they go down to, you know, central Cairo and then just have a field day and they do it on the feast days. And so I'm sure now in Cairo as we speak, you know, there's always harassment going on. And so they, they do it during those days, you know, when lots of people are out about and strolling and shopping and so on. Then there are other theories, you know, that the Ikhwan are involved. Well, the Ikhwan rhetoric doesn't help. I mean, if you say, you know, if you go out dressed like whatever, you're not going, you have to expect it, and therefore they, they almost license it. But then on the other hand, people with hijabs and people with niqabs also get harassed. Uh, so uh, dress isn't what isn't you know, going to protect them? Uh, is it the Islamists doing it? We don't know. Um, is it um, people from any political, like the Qulul, also the remnants? Now they, you know, they used to, uh, I mean, hire uh, Baltagis and hired thugs to do all sorts of things. So are they doing it? Um, so there are all these people asking all these questions. And, um, and one thing that most people seem to reject is this kind of stereotype, you know, of the sort of sex-starved Arab Muslim man or something, or a Christian Muslim or whatever they are, and uh, most people aren't running around um, speaking like that. But um, also because there is no security. I mean, security meaning police and military, I mean, in the good sense. I mean, there is none. And uh, so um, uh, there's more now, of course, as we know, and maybe not all the right sorts. So it's, it can be, you know, a kind of a a heyday for, um, for folks. Uh, and, uh, but it's really rather heartening that the, that the youth are fighting back and they're developing all kinds, of, I mean, they're also trying to tell these people that they catch, you know, they're trying to give them a few lessons and kind of sort them out a bit. And, uh, and this is also just part of the ongoing revolution of, of taking over and protecting yourself and not going back, I mean, not being intimidated, but giving yourself the tools. And I hear that all these, you know, clubs that teach self-defense, I mean, are really booming. 
So if you want to take stocks in business, <laughs> I think that's where to go. Maybe a tip for the night. Is there a couple more questions before we finish up? Yes, right here. Thank you. Um, just a very quick note on what you were just mentioning. Um, I read a little bit about Ciudad Juarez in the north of Mexico where they have extreme violence. Uh, a city in the northern, north of Mexico called oh. Ciudad Juarez, oh, okay. yeah. Juarez City. Right. And I know that feminist literature talks about what happens in a sort of the female genocide in terms of sexual terrorism, just sort of men afraid that the sort of gender hierarchy is being broken down by all these new things. So I just thought I'd throw the word sexual terrorism out there. Um, but I actually wanted to ask a question of Lucia, and it's also relevant for yourself. Uh, I was really interested when you mentioned um, that the revolution is a private revolution now. I'm wondering if you meant in terms of consciousness or if you meant in terms of just sort of breaking into, um, I guess, a new way of being that's not been present before. From what I, I have seen in the, in the last two years and a half, uh, I mean, my, I was in Egypt for the first time in my life in the late 90s. Uh, then I was there again uh, uh, in uh, 2002, 2001, uh, and uh, 2003. Then uh, I, I didn't work for 2005. Then I, I didn't work for two years. Uh, I mean, the concept of authority was completely gone, especially in 2011. Uh, 2011 was, a, was special from this point of view. And uh, also all the, the sense of oppression, uh, which uh, was uh, clear and evident. Uh, um, let's think about literature, for example, the literature of the 90s. It's uh, a literature, there is a whole generation of writers uh, which is called the generation of the 90s, uh, which was uh, theorizing a sort of uh, the disengagement from politics no? after, after the previous generation was the generation uh, of the literature engagée and of the dissidence literature. This new generation was uh, trying to develop uh, a sort of intimist literature uh, because they were, they, they, they lose the hope for a change. Although I, when I was conversing with them, I was uh, questioning this kind of disengagement because I, uh, it was evident that something was uh, growing underneath. Because the, the, the respective research was uh, implicitly a form of, uh, a form of dissidence, of dissidence. Now, uh, now, if you if you read the new novels which uh, which are published, if you need, the, but not only highbrow literature, uh, also comics uh, and uh, popular literature uh, and uh, art, you you can find that politics uh, is back there. It's there again, and uh, and, the, and there is a strong feeling uh, or reinventing uh, politics reinventing uh, the dynamics uh, of participation. Mm. And if you refer it to women, uh, for example, you can see that women uh, are not equally represented in formal institutions, 
but they are fast scaling at different levels. They are everywhere. So it's, uh, I, I believe that it's time perhaps of a generation, perhaps even less, and that this change is going to happen, and perhaps this change will influence the rest of the world. If I might, just very quickly, since you mentioned that, do you see, do you sort of look in your research at the situation in a more global perspective or is it more of a national, um, what's going on in Egypt itself? Because I know that the, what's happening in Egypt itself has had a big impact globally and social movements and what they're seeing is possible. Does, is Egypt also impacted by outside movements or other sort of global <laughs> issues? Globalization started a uh, long time ago. It's not, uh, it's not, this didn't start with the, the revolution of 2011, but of course there is an, uh, a combination of global uh, and uh, uh, local uh, uh, components. Mm -hmm. I, I think that what is happening in Egypt uh, is uh, unique because uh, it is part of the Egyptian history, it's part of the first part of her uh, uh, speech. And, uh, and they're very well in, uh, in, you know, I teach uh, history and, uh, and uh, since the beginning of, I mean, history has always been global history. You know? So it depends from the perspective you adopt to interpret facts. You can focus on uh, rather uh, specific uh, moments, uh, specific phases, uh, or you can look at the connections. Uh, Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think that brings us uh, appropriately enough from the global to the local to the uh, end of the, of the talk. Um, I mean, I couldn't help but thinking of, you know, uh, Hannah Arendt's wonderful uh, uh, book on revolution where she's trying to figure out or provide an account of, of how revolutionary spirits are kind of preserved in different contexts. And she, she has this sort of uh, debate between the French and the American Revolution, and she's struck by how she thinks the Americans have found a way to, at least in some way, to, to preserve some kind of revolutionary moment. And then, of course, that, that gets dissipated. And, and one thinks that perhaps now we're thinking about ways in which countries like Egypt and Tunisia and others in the Arab Spring will make that transition. That's got to be one of the most dis difficult transitions to make from a revolution to a new place, and I think uh, Lucia and Margot have been uh, wonderful sort of witnesses and commentators on what's happening. It's good to have historians as witnesses, right? Because you take notes, um, and uh, we get to read them later on. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's thank Margot and uh, Lucia very much.